When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, this is Sean Williams from Gideon Media. I'm the producer of Give Me Away, and I also play Graham and Joshua. I'm here with Jordana Williams, the director of Give Me Away, and Mac Rogers, the writer of Give Me Away. And we are creating this very special podcast to celebrate World Audio Drama Day. So you're getting another fantastic episode from us, which uh, has nothing to do with the plot. (laughs) It's just us chatting. Um, Mac, I want to get right into it because you and I and Jordana, the three of us have been making shows together for a very, very long time. (laughs) And we never get, we're always in the mud and we never get to talk about how we're getting where we're going. We're always just doing it. Hmm. So talk to me for a minute about your process when you are thinking about creating worlds and characters i know this is very broad but worlds and characters and specifically how you've used what you know about your theatrical writing to inform creating work for audio well uh because i've been working with gideon media for so long you know like you know back you know uh, with many of the same artists with gideon productions as a theatrical entity and then you know segueing with many of those same artists into Gideon Media for audio. The way that I create stories in this context uh, sort of brings together uh, two strands, uh, sort of two tributaries. One is the ideas that I'm interested in exploring the, and, and the story hooks that I'm interested in exploring. And the second is tailoring them to the people that I know that I'm going to be working with. Um, so in in, the, in this particular instance, um, you know, I was like, okay, what's a cool story that Gideon Media that what, what's something special that not only would I be really excited in in writing that that's based around ideas that are fascinating to me and would keep me going, you know, even when my energy is flagging. But secondly, what stuff would be well suited to the other artists in the company? And naturally, as a result of that second consideration, the very first people I think about are you and Jordana. When I was thinking about what kind of story I wanted to tell, I always know that I have to chase my own obsessions because that's the fuel that keeps me going when I'm completely sick of the script. But I was I thought that I could also write about stuff that particularly, you know, we knew very early on that you'd be playing Graham and Joshua. And, and a big and a big part of the pleasure with that was writing a role. When I write for actors that I've worked with many times, the pleasure is in writing something that I know that they'll be good at based on the work that I've seen them do in the past and done with them in the past, right. but that goes a little bit into a new place 
that I haven't seen them go in their work with me. So with Graham and Joshua, part of the fun of designing that sort of dual character that would, that would both be played by you is that I, I, I could have sort of the fun of playing with sort of two Sean modes, uh, uh, <laughs> but I could have a little bit of fun with playing with your, with, our, with the many years of you impersonating me. Uh, so I knew that I could have a little fun with making the character a little more, the, the Graham character a little more stammery or whatever. Um, but also that I could get into the kind of ideas that both of you would be interested in telling a story about people who are a bit older, uh, people whose children are a bit older, people who are starting to look at like, you know, what life is going to be down the road a little bit, people who are looking at what, you know, in a larger sense, what moving forward into an uncertain future when you have children is going to feel like, because I'm I'm very aware that having children not having children gives you two entirely different ways of of perceiving the world like when you read the news you don't have the exact you have very different feelings sure. and yeah, uh, yeah. um and so it was very important to me in this story that these characters have that 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 our that our main character have children that our main character Graham be someone who feels that he has that his life has a role to play in the future and then i thought because uh, I've worked with Jordana for so long, you know, like I said, the the particular gift to your impersonations of me with Jordana, I know how much Jordana really loves deeply inappropriate characters, uh, the kind of people that she <laughs> probably would not like in real life, uh, but 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 that are great fun as characters. And so there was part of the when when it kind of when I kind of hit upon the idea that that Graham was going to be faux accidentally paired with this nasty, mean-spirited, you know, evil genius, Joshua. And he was also going to have a child, a, a daughter, Jamie, um, who was kind of like a self-centered, you know, uh, uh, kind of unpleasant person who, who has some, she, there's a, I do think there's a core of good to Jamie, but she really just does not know how to express it. Yeah, and when absolutely. it slowly dawned on me that these two characters were eventually going to find their way to a really bizarre kinship, um, I was like, oh, okay, there's that's Jordana's dessert for the show. Yeah. Uh, uh, so like there, there's certain things, and they, you know, beyond that, there's there's other stuff with the other artists we work about. But but when I think of a Gideon story, it's it's very different from thinking of stories for other companies I work for because it's not just the ideas up in the air right. or the story hooks up in the air. Yeah, it's yeah. very I very much think about what the other artists want to do. Well, and let me in. let me just bring in Jordana on this too because I am not really privy ever to the way that the two of you guys talk about character development and particularly casting like it really is in your court so jordana when you are working with mac on a script at what point do you start talking about who's going to play the parts and do you ever come in with a casting idea that then feeds back on mac to start start altering characters I think I do, um, but that would be more for Mac to answer. I mean, I think um, it actually it's also helpful because often there will only be maybe one or two episodes written when we're starting the casting conversation. So <laughs> <clears throat> not for nothing. Um, so I may say to Mac, this character seems like a maybe fill in the blank actor we know. And Mac will be like, oh, well, so some things happen later on. Let me, you know, and, you know, so usually we think the same, usually we think pretty much the same thing. I don't think there were any major surprises here, um, but, 
you know, it's it's both a blessing and a curse to to cast it early because there are things that maybe I, you know, that would be revealed later on um, that might have brought a different person to mind. But I think it's actually more than compensated for by the fact that especially when it's an actor we know well, Mac has that voice in his mind from early on and can finish the writing and can do all the rewrites, thinking of that particular actor's speech yeah. patterns and, and you know, stuff that they really enjoy doing. Let me say from the outside, like um, as probably your guy's most constant audience member uh, <laughs> of everyone in the entire world, there is something sort of magical that happens though, Jordana, with your work with Mac when the two of you guys are creating a character and then you add in the actor, it's almost like when you're cooking and you guys are just like, okay, this is the flavor palette. This is like, these are the spices, this is everything. And then someone shows up and they've brought turkey instead of ham or whatever. And so I guess my question is when you're when you are given an actor and a role or whatever, you know, you guys will work together. You'll say, great, Sean's going to play this part or Diana's going to play this part. But then when we get in the studio, Jordana, I feel like I watch you um, making something new. Like you don't, I don't ever notice, I, I don't feel like you come in saying this is, we're going to get it right. Yeah, no, I, I feel like I come in with some preoccupations about a scene. Like yeah. I come in, where I am interested in something um, and I have a plan A for how to activate it. But most of the time I'm surprised by what I find and I primarily work responsibly. You know, I, I try not to come in with nothing because it's good to have a little bit of a plan, but, um, but yeah, usually, you know, 75% of what I learn about a scene is from hearing the first read through. And it's just, oh, I think I know what to do to bring this to life a little bit more. That is yeah. so, like, that is so you want to meet You want to meet what is brought to you that day, like rather than, yeah, I, I try not to have too prescriptive an idea of how it should work. But I do try to like think about what are some pitfalls in this scene? If it's gonna be boring, where is it gonna be boring? Um, you know, what do I think the the sort of power transaction is that sort of stuff, but um, being surprised is the so best. So let me actually go off the boring thing for a second, because one of the things that you have to deal with in the theater is making sure that everyone who's uncomfortable and hot and can't eat snacks <laughs> is going to stay interested for two hours. <laughs> And then one of the things that we have to do in audio drama is to make sure that people want to come back for the next episode. Right. And Mac, do you find yourself when you moved from the theater to audio, obviously not, you're not a hundred percent moved, but moving from one medium to the other, um, do you, do you find that there are different things you have to do in order to please the, the, audience member, whether they're a listener or an audience member in person, do you feel like yeah. there are different skills that you need? There's a, it's a weird combination of the same stuff and some really different stuff. I mean, the audio drama is surprisingly close to theater in the sense that it does genuinely reward long, steadily accelerating conversations. Like you genuinely can have an extended scene in audio drama 
that uh, will, will grip people as long as the conversation remains interesting, as long as the tension in the conversation rises just incrementally as you go through it, and as long as you know you introduce little bits of um, topspin from little kinds of interference during the conversation. But those are the exact same tools that you would deploy in writing a stage conversation to keep them interesting. So I do like that it's not entirely a departure, that it's not entirely, I remember the first couple of screenplays I worked on, the people who had hired me, you know, they looked at some of the longer scenes I included. They said, Mac, think about every movie you've ever seen. Have you ever, outside of my dinner with Andre, have you ever seen a conversation <laughs> that ran that long? Um, and, you know, so I understand that like, you know, film, television, storytelling, um, very, most often the story is told with the cut rather than the, you know, you, you have a bit of conversation. Oh, no, no, we're not bringing her in on this job. We're not bringing Angie in on this job. Cut to Angie joining the job. Um, but the difference with audio drama storytelling is the, the, the big difference. I'd say probably the most valuable thing I learned was on my second gig writing life after for um, Panoply, and they brought in the longstanding radio drama director, uh, John Dryden, who does a lot of work with the BBC. And um, th probably the advice that he gave me when giving me feedback on my script for that show is probably the advice that I use most frequently nowadays, which is you've got to give the listener's ear varied texture. You've got to give the listener's ear, you've got to give the listener's ear a break from the tone of that last scene and give them a, not, not just a different dr dramatic dynamic, but get them outside get them if they were if they were just in a small room get them in a big room or get them on a desert plane let their ear feel different textures throughout the story and suddenly realized i'd, I'd been noticing that when i listened to audio drama um and and i had I'd been thinking about it and that helped immensely in the writing of seal the stars and give me away uh in terms of like it's 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 very subliminal it's not like something that would come out of some like you know screenwriting handbook but it is very immediate to the experience of listeners. It's brilliant. It's it's absolutely brilliant advice. And if it you know if it comes from Mac Rogers and the BBC, that's uh, that's a pretty good source. <laughs> Jordana, I kind of want to ask you the same question because sure. as a friend of yours, I'm really fascinated to know how you keep yourself interested in the story. And I've got a specific question for you because. This relates directly not only to audio drama, but to science fiction. And you you have shown both on on audio and on stage to have a really deft hand with dealing with science fiction. In every science fiction show ever, there is a moment where some guy has to explain what crodlamillions are. There's always <laughs> some Doctor Who-esque explanation of the the wibbly bibbly fake science that we've built and then on audio drama you're always running into circumstances where people are like in bad audio drama you'll run into a place where two people are talking and one of them says to the other i see you're wearing a tuxedo and the first guy says yes i am and you are also wearing a tuxedo and the first guy says well we should be we're at the ball you know or whatever yeah. And you and Mac together have managed to circumnavigate those pitfalls, but it does land on you and the actors to spit out a mouthful of stuff that isn't in Pinter. And so I'm wondering how you keep it energized. 
Um, I mean, hopefully the script is is helping, um, and Macs generally do, uh, where the information is parceled out, the information is given in such a way in such times that it makes sense that the other characters need to hear it, not just that it's helpful for the audience. Um, and then it's just uh, as much emotional texture as as possible, that it's about, um, you know, what you're trying to persuade somebody to do, or you're trying to stay alive, or it's about a particular relationship. So I think the, the characters might be just as impatient with that information delivery as we as listeners are. And so just, just to, to recognize that and it's all, it's speculative fiction, right? All like science fiction, fantasy, horror, they're, they're all different kinds of, of, of speculative modes. And it's basically, what if this were actually happening and these were the relationships and these were the personalities, how would each of those individual people process it? And also I think like surprising moments of levity or surprising moments of tenderness mixed in uh, with, with those things uh, help make it feel like real relationships, because it's not like you just have a fight in the middle of a fight, you know, you might joke around for a little second. Yeah. I, and actually now that you guys have both described this, it occurs to me that the um, jargon section from the end of each, from the end of, of steal the stars and from the end of um, give me away in both cases, Mac, you've designed it so that a person is basically locked in a container surrounded yeah. by machines of death and so they they cannot give all like in the middle of the description where they're just like look this is a machine that does the following two things it does this and yeah. it does this there's no time for one of the other characters say to say like well i don't understand if you're from another planet how did you plug it into the wall don't you guys use different outlets? You know, like, which of course, uh, some of our fans have spent a lot of time dissecting <laughs> different things we've made. But in both those cases, was that a conscious decision? Because now I'm scanning back and like thinking about the honeycomb, like every time you have these moments of, of big scientific jargon explanations, mm -hmm. you have managed to find a place for them to occur where so much other stuff is happening. Yeah, the 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 uh, it's it's one of the oldest tricks in the book because it serves it serves multiples it, it solves multiple things. A, a scene is automatically more interesting if everyone is fighting for their agenda in it. And you talked about using theatrical tools to go into audio. Um, one thing I definitely learned with theater is whenever you have a large group scene, um, uh, if you're an audience member watching a large group scene, the people who are standing on stage who have no reason for being there except that the production wants them <laughs> to be on stage, those people stick out like a sore thumb. You could, it's very blatant that they shouldn't be there. And that's always bothered me as an audience member. And so it's something I always try to fight as a playwright. If I've got a large group of, of people on stage, it's a long scene. I keep looking at the list of characters and going, all right, who hasn't done something in a while? When, why are they there if they haven't done something in a while? Well, the final episode of Give Me Away um, is essentially one of those scenes, but on audio. So um, I, I showed up at writing that fortified with the experience of having written large character scenes. Uh, a lot of listeners won't be familiar with this, but the final episode of Give Me Away is quite reminiscent of one of uh, the plays that we produced called Sovereign. It was the third part of the Honeycomb trilogy and that both plays are a group of people in a tightly enclosed situation 
who don't all like particularly like each other who are forced to have a conversation about how they're going to solve an incredibly pressing problem but the solution also expresses where they're all coming from philosophically so you could get easily mired in the weeds of where everyone's coming from philosophically but then there's that time limit the time limit comes in it means you can't talk about it for too long everyone's got to compress their philosophy into a couple of nice terse words and they're about to get interrupted by somebody else so yeah it makes the scene more exciting and it also means that you don't have to really get in the weeds with some of the science fiction explanations because you're always shooting forward to that one goal which is to tie all of the techno babble to a really difficult human choice as fast as possible you want to get it to a choice and there, there's also a thing where often i find that making the petty resentments between the characters loom just as large as the major sci-fi happening <laughs> um is kind of like what makes it feel real and brings it to life because the petty things are what obsess most of us like even and i you know this well give me away is in no way a covid story um i i don't know how much of that kind of that pandemic mindset went into your writing mac mm -hmm. but it's it's hugely there for me yeah. like especially at the beginning like there was this sense that we were all paying attention to the same stories and and all focused on the same thing and then You've got Graham, who's so trapped in his own head, he barely notices it at first, which just I think is probably incredibly relatable to a lot of people that that sense of like, yes, I, I realize that this unfathomably massive, terrifying, tragic thing is happening but I'm still stuck being me. <laughs> and, and now my own like internal world is looming larger than ever because I'm in the same physical space all the time. So Give Me Away is very much about that. It's basically like, you know, the, the old saying, like, wherever you go, there you <laughs> are. Like, whatever earth shattering thing happens to the earth, you bring your own crap to it. Um, I don't know, I think that's sort of, there's so much opportunity there to deal with things on the most global level and on the most like deeply internal and personal. And I feel like that, um, when you mix those two things up really effectively, um, that's what makes things uh, really exciting yeah. for me. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. I I want to, I, we don't have a ton of time and I really do want to talk about what happens with the two of you guys. Um, both Both of you guys have worked outside of Gideon and within Gideon with each other. And you write the script, the script is recorded and made, the two of you have worked together to make it happen. And then you have to turn it over to someone. Sure. And when you are doing live theater, you turn it over to the actors. But in audio, at that point, you have created only the relationships and the dialogue. And then we turn the piece over to a group of post-production people who then right. add in the worlds and stuff. Do you find that there is a unifying idea? Are there things that you're listening to in post-production in your own pieces or in other pieces? Are there things that you find distracting? Are there things that you think are 
uh, are important to either include or avoid? So I am really happy to let a brilliant sound designer do their brilliant sound design. Um, and it's basically only when I notice something in a way that that feels wrong. Interesting. Um, so I yeah, so I um, and I don't always have necessarily a very clear idea of what the alien sound is like. I just, it, I, I, it's, it's really like 95% feelings for me. <laughs> like, like I want nothing to get in the way of feeling like this stuff is happening to our friends, the characters. Um, and then everything else is pace. <laughs> I want to keep it moving and I want it to feel true. And, and as long as it does that, um, I think everybody should get to do their job. Mac, I'll come back to you in a second. I just wanted to respond to what you were saying, Jordana, because it ties together actually almost everything we've talked about. Uh, there was a piece we did called Advance Man, which uh, was the a companion piece to Sovereign. There is a big swath of technological information that needs to come out at the end of Advance Man before the aliens hatch and take over the world. The character I was playing had to deliver all of that. And Jordana, I kept delivering all of it and looking at you, waiting for you to tell me that I was boring. Like, just waiting for you to just be like, can you do it faster? Can we cut half this? What was happening is what the two of you guys had set up at that point. It, the, the show was in our hands, but the characters were made. All of us were on stage together. Half of us hated the other half and a button was going to end the world and someone had to press it and it was my character's job to to explain why the button had to be pushed and you explained it in different ways to different people right like you would tell your wife about it in a different way that you would tell your son and that you would tell your daughter because those relationships that we just spent two hours building were very different um and so yeah, and that's another that's another moment where um, things are maximally global and and maximally. Intimate. Yeah, and so it's exactly what you're talking about. Like one of the reason, one of the ways that you keep things interesting is by keeping the people real and keeping the characters invested in each other's success and failure. I'm sorry, mm -hmm. I'm going to bring you back, Mac, to the post production question. Just very quickly, are there things in post-production, are there things when you're listening either to your own work or to other audio drama, things that you really like or things that you would want to avoid? You know, I'm still struggling. I always have a little bit of dread that causes me to delay my first listen to whatever the new cut is that's just come over the transom because uh, I find it very hard to pay attention to the parts that I'm supposed to be paying attention to, which is, you're like, okay, if it's the dialogue edit, the performance, do we have a different performance on that line uh, um, or the pacing on the dialogue edit? Or if it's the sound design, is there a different way of realizing this moment? Can we bring this element down? Can we bring this element up? Basically everyone else's work because I can't stop focusing on what, what I wish I could fix in mine. And it's far too late for that. And it's, you know, it's something that I know just plagues everybody. Every time I read a review with a filmmaker, they said yeah, the worst part is when you're taking your movie around to do a couple of premieres or film festivals or whatever, because all you do is sit there and watch the mistakes. Um, I, so it's something I just need to get, uh, I just need to get under control because it's just, I'm never gonna not feel it, but it causes me to struggle. I, I listen to those, I listen to the dialogue edits or I listen to the sound effects edits or I listen to the final mix edit and I have a very hard time 
pushing away the stuff that I'm obsessed with and wishing I could fix and focusing on the stuff that I'm there to focus on that day, which will move the project uh, forward. The other part that I really struggle with is because I did theater for so long. If I watch a run through of a show and I'm sitting next to Jordana, I, if I, there's something I want changed, I know that it could be changed. Jordana might not agree with me. She might not do it, but I know that in theory, I know what things are possible to change. I, I know what the parameters are. I still haven't learned sound design enough to know what I can ask for. Um, and so there's like this hesitancy uh, uh, where perhaps my, uh, I, I need my notes to be a lot clearer for, the, for any sound designer that I'm working with, because uh, once I have a much clearer idea of what can be accomplished, then I can say, please just give me this instead of the kind of notes I tend to give, which is endless hemming and hawing going, well, I mean, if it's possible to do a sort of a thing like this, then I would find that quite agreeable. But if it's not, here's a more modest version of what I was thinking of, which is just this big mealy mouthed paragraph, which leaves the sound designer kind of irritated and lost. So I need to get better at understanding their craft so I can give them better notes. I do think, um, I mean, people often ask me what the producer's job is. And I think that, I think a good producer is good at that. I think mm -hmm. a good producer, when, when uh, Mac, if you say like, um, it just, it feels like, um, it, it feels like they're in two different rooms. Is he supposed mm -hmm. to be outside that room or whatever? Right. Then a good producer, my job is to be able to take that note and go to, the the designer because very often the notes from people who don't do audio are simply i think the footsteps are too loud right <laughs> that's a completely reasonable that's a completely reasonable mm -hmm. note i think the footsteps are too loud but actually maybe the footsteps aren't too loud they're just not set in the mix in the right place they don't have the same ambient color you know there there are lots of ways that that those that that, that note can be addressed so mm -hmm. like the writer and director you guys should be able to say i think the footsteps are too loud and then a producer has to be able to go to the design team and say you know this is this is how i think we can fix this and i also think there's something that is kind of fine and great about us all bringing our own imperfect lens to to this um i agree you know uh like kara allenfelt who produces with us their ears are just a million times better than mine and i'm simply not going to feel bad about the fact that like when it comes to the mix we should all kind of just shut up and let Kara say these are the minuscule adjustments that are going to make it work because like I'll he I'll hear one of every 10 things, but Kara's going to hear them all and like you know i'm going to bring my preoccupations and Mac is going to bring his and like. I don't know I don't I don't think we have to any of us strive per for perfection that's sort of the beautiful thing about working collaboratively is that if we if we all look at it with our own weird eyes, it'll it'll add up to something that that we can feel good about. I think that's that's a beautiful way of putting it. I mean, they are our own weird ears, but yeah, I I sure, totally sure. totally agree. Um, I'm just gonna wrap this up by saying, I believe that the reason that our company has managed to work as consistently as we have and is doing work that people tend to like is because there is a combination between the way the two of you guys work that I, I only know because I'm in the dressing room with the actors all the time. And mm -hmm. I know that everyone who's playing this part feel like the parts were created from a place 
of like respect, intelligence, and articulation. And then we developed them in rehearsal in a place where we were safe to explore and where, where reasonable things were asked of us and where we were always asked to play to our strengths. So the reason that anyone who's ever worked with the two of you has always wanted to work with you again, despite the fact that we have worked in some low rent circumstances, <laughs> but the two of you guys have done such a wonderful job of making all of the artists that we work with feel empowered and focusing always on their strengths. And I think uh, our success really is because of that. I, I mean, I think it's sort of the blessing of, of teeny tiny budget theater being where we started and where we spent so many years. Um, the primary thing we could deliver was a worthwhile experience right mm -hmm. there like mac was never like you couldn't really write somebody who was just sort of like a guard you know the el the elevator operator mm -hmm. because like that person just had no reason to show up so every role had you know some real emotional heft to it had, you know had, had a reason it would be joyful to play yeah. and i always had the the sense that it was my job to create an environment that was, you know, a happy place to be, you know, 99% of the time, you know, there's always the one bad day. Um, but, but I'm, I'm really grateful that that we came up with that, you know, we that we came up in those circumstances, yeah. because I think it's ingrained in us, like, now we we could pay somebody just enough to do a boring thing, <laughs> or to or to or to have a slightly bad time, but, um, but we don't want right. to, yeah. right? we never cultivated that habit. Yep. All right, guys, I really appreciate you taking the time. So thank you. And to everyone who's listening, happy World Audio Drama Day. This is going to be our new podcast. It's just going to be me, Jordana, and Mac talking about how great the other ones are at what we're doing. That's it from now on. No more fiction. I hope you didn't like the alien stuff. All right, guys, thank you so much. Right now, real pleasure. Happy Audio Drama Day. Happy Audio Drama Day. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. Good evening, and welcome to Strange Air. I am your host, Malcolm Smith, and I'll be here for the next four hours taking your calls as we explore the outer regions of reality. Ten years ago, Malcolm Smith vanished from the face of the earth. One moment, he was on the air in the middle of a sentence, and the next moment, he was gone. People will believe anything. So, what do you think happened? I believe your father staged the whole thing. I believe your daddy was taken. Do you believe in miracles? I guess people believe what they want to believe. I believe I'll have a little more wine. It's time you heard the truth about your father! You're completely insane. Did someone hit you? Leave me alone! What's going on?! I'm going to find my father. Strange Air. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit strangeairpodcast.com for more information.